As long as the car's running, as long as it gets me from place to place, everything under the hood is perfect. I don't need to work with anything. It's great. And then there's me, and I fall into the category of the realists. And I know oil's really important to your car. I also know I really haven't checked it in a long time. So as long as I don't check it, I'm not faced with either the reality of me not knowing what to do or paying someone who knows what they do to fix it. I just live in wonderful, ignorant bliss, knowing there's a real thing that needs to happen to my car, but I'm just going to choose not to address it. And then there's this third and final group of people, and I like to call these people people who don't want their cars to break. And those are the people who know how to check their oil, and they check it, or they at least see the value in having a car that works, and they schedule frequent oil changes. And they go in, and they either cost them in terms of their own time, or it costs them in terms of their money, but it's important to them. And tonight, I want to speak in terms of these three categories, the realist, the, the, realist, the optimist, and the one who wants their cars to work. But I want to talk about it in regards to our own hearts. Because so many times we can fall into one of those categories with who we are. We know our hearts are valuable. We know it matters what we do, who we are, what we think. But how much effort do we put into it? How conscious are we? And more specifically, tonight we're going to talk about love. How aware are we of the role of love in our life? You see, there are optimists who say, I have friends. They don't hate me. I'm doing well at love. I am a lovely person and life is good. There's the realist, and again, this is where I would fall, and I say, no one hates me. Sure, I could do better, but I've got friends. No one is spray painting my car, and I don't have a Donald Trump sign in my yard. I'm doing well. I just don't really want to take too much time to introspect my own heart. And then there are people who see the weight of love, and they're willing to change their life around that love, and they're willing to serve others through that love. And those are the people who take time to soberly assess what the word love means in your life. And love is a really important idea in our world today. Songs are sung about it. Movies are written about it. Books are published about it. But tonight we want to look specifically at the lens of love uh, through the gospel. We want to see what the Bible says about love. And if this is our truth, if this is our authority, this is where we see the portrait of what true love looks like. And so tonight, what we're going to see is that love is the motivation, security, and joy of the believer. Love motivates us, it provides us with security, and it gives us joy. And we're going to look at three things tonight. These are the three things we're going to look at in 1 Peter 1, 22 through uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 3. So we're looking at six verses tonight. Um, I can't count. I think that's six. It's six. Good. Uh, and so we're going to look at those six verses, and what we're going to see, we're going to see the priority of love. We're going to see the perspective of love, and we're going to see the process of love. And what I want us to do is I want us to not be as apathetic towards love as we are towards the oil in our car. I want us to not just assume it's good. I want us to not just hope that it's good, but I want us to know how to check it and how to change our lives around the weight of that love. So let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for your son. And the gospel, because it is the truth that you gave us about an eternal reality of a people being dead in sin and saved by a sinless Savior, the weight of that pushes our priorities around. It changes what we find important. It brings things to the surface and it presses things down. It realigns our hearts, Lord. And so I pray tonight that uh, you give us the growing pains of Christianity 
that whether we have been Christian for a long time or whether we are skeptics or whether we are just considering the weight of Christianity, Lord, I pray that you make it uncomfortable for us so that we can know how to grow into it well so that we can see that it's more than just a creed or a code or a name we put on our Facebook profile, but that Jesus Christ is something that changes who we are because of what he did for us. And so Lord, I pray that you make us concerned with our love, that you hold up the mirror of the gospel so that we may see ourselves in great clarity and change our lives to match what you've put up in scripture. We love you, Lord. We thank you for this evening. We pray for us as we go on our retreat this weekend. It is a time of seeing, cherishing, and encouraging one another in the gospel, having great time with those who are around us. Um, we thank you for creation that is beautiful to enjoy. And we thank you that the most beautiful aspect of creation is still only a sliver of the glory and beauty that you have for us, the beauty that will captivate us for the rest of eternity. We love you, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. So if you remember last week, um, we began uh, to look at Peter saying, what is it that you're saved for? What does your salvation begin to do? How do you live? Because we saw in 1 Peter 1 that there's this imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept in heaven for those who are saved. And so for those who have that hope, how do you live? And last week we saw he calls us to obedience. Because you have this hope, be holy as Jesus was holy. It shapes our life. It shapes what we do. It shapes what we don't do. Be holy. Be different because Jesus was holy and it's his holiness that saves us. And now what Peter's doing is because remember he's writing a letter and so Peter didn't sit down and intend this to be read over like a 16-week period. He wanted this to be read in the moment. This was a letter and so he's continuing that thought. So moving straight on from obedience, I want us to look at 1 Peter 1, 22. Having purified your soul by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. So I want you to see here, I want us to, to put on our study lenses like we're in a literature class and I want us to look at this text like we're studying it. Not like we expect to read the Bible mindlessly and magic happens to us. I want us to, to do the work, what, God, what Paul calls in Timothy, to be approved workmen who look at this text and, and look at what it says. It says that you have been purified by an obedience to truth for a sincere brotherly love. So this is our first point tonight, and we're going to unpack this a little. This is the priority of love. So here we see Paul talking, giving us the word of God, and he's putting a priority on love. And uh, one question I love to ask when I'm meeting with students, and even as I'm just talking through hard issues with my wife, my favorite question is, what do we know? What do we know? At that moment, what do we know to be true? Because so many times we focus on one truth and that truth begins to scare us or frighten us or threaten us. But at any given moment, there's often multiple truths that are right and good and true at that moment. And so right now, I want you to think, of, I want you to play this game with me. What do we know in regards to your salvation? What did God save you for? Just think about that. What do you know about that? What is true? And perhaps you could say, we're saved because we're dead in our sins. And we needed it. Yes, you're right. Perhaps we could say that God gets glory through saving people who can't save themselves. Absolutely. It's a huge theme of scripture. Perhaps you could say what, what uh, Paul or Peter just talked about last week, where we are saved so that we can love and obey Jesus 
forever. It's great. I, I do this little thing. It actually happened accidentally with my kids. I, I pray with them at night, and I realize that my prayers are, the last part is like really, f- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Really consistent, just by accident. And I was praying. I'm like, dear Jesus, we thank you for dying for our, and I like coughed or something, and my one-and-a-half-year-old daughter is like, sins! This is great. She's listening. Like, and so I, I like continue. I'm like, I thank you that you died so that we might. And she goes, obey. And then I said, and then in obeying, we might have. And she goes, life. And I'm like, that's awesome. I was accidentally a really good parent here. Um, but she sees that there's this, this, this Jesus dying for your sins so that we might obey and we might have life. And all of those things are absolutely true. But look again at the truth that's being emphasized in 1 Peter 1 verse 22. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. You were saved by obedience to the truth. That's you responding to the gospel, responding to the word of God, believing, repenting, confessing for, that word for, as in resulting in or for the purpose of brotherly love. You were saved by Jesus before the foundations of the world, called to God's purposes, chosen, loved, purchased, ransomed for brotherly love. Now, that doesn't mean those other reasons don't matter. That doesn't mean those truths aren't truths. That doesn't mean that you focus on one and you lose the other, but it means that we have to hold all of them together. What we know about salvation right now in this text is that you were saved to love others. What does God desire of Christians? And if you identify as a Christian, what does God desire of you? An earnest and sincere brotherly love. When you think about the gospel, how it is that you were saved, do you think of this? Do you think that this is the result of the cross? When Easter comes and we all are focused on the cross because apparently it's not normal to focus on the cross the rest of the year, We focus on the cross on Easter, this clearest moment of focusing on the redemption. Do you think about how that urges you to love others? When you think about culture's perception of Christianity, does this meet the perception of how we are perceived in the world? When you consider the task of your life, the purpose of your life, here you are, you're at school, you're studying, you're paying money to achieve something. What role does loving one another play in that? And this is important for Jesus himself says this in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, where it says this. And he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the great and first commandment. Two truths. We're seeing two truths here. What's the second truth? And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands depend all the law and all the prophets. We either love the first and disregard the second or love the second and disregard the the first. But Jesus calls us to do both. On these two things, loving God and loving others, rests the whole of God's counsel, the whole theme of God's scripture, the whole of what we're called to do. So in your life, you cannot choose to neglect one for the other or to cherish one and hate the other. They must be brought together. And the way in which we do that is the hard part. How does that happen for us? What does that look like in your life? You see, it's all too easy when we think about love to all become optimists really quick. Do I love? Absolutely, I love. I have a heart, right? It's good. 
I've watched The Office. I want Jim and Pam to get together. We all want that. We all have this capacity for love. But how easy is it to have love in name, but not in substance? How easy, it, easy is it for the world to hijack what the, the, the four-letter word, one L-O-V-E, four-letter word, and to hijack that and to redefine it as something else? I watched this TV show, it was really weird. I watched it like by accident on Netflix the other day, which very rarely is that ever a good decision to watch something by accident on Netflix. Um, and it was this terrifying show. And it painted this reality in the future of what our life would look like. And in it, um, basically, the bridge between social media and real life was merged and you rate your interactions with people. So if I talk to, to Swaggy over here, and I say, man, that's a great beard, I would five-star him right now on my phone, and it would actually affect his overall persona. You're ranked in terms of your interaction with people off of this interaction you have. Your social media presence, your social media influence actually creates caste systems for how people are perceived in society. So there's one lady applying for a loan, and they said, well, you have to be at least a 4.3 to get a good rate on this loan. And so she begins to spend the whole of her life trying to get enough people to five-star her or upvote her or like her so she could qualify for this loan. And what happened is every time you see this interaction with people on the show, they always, they always point their phone like this, and they always do this, which means five, they're like going up the scale. It's a scale. And they five-star it. And then the other person does it back and they watch their phone and they see what, what happened. What was I ranked? They take pictures of their, their hipster food pictures and they set it up in such a way and they sit at their desks and they wait to see who likes it and what happens to their perception. What happens to their identity? Are people going to like it? Are they going to have greater access to society? As their social media presence rises, so does their status. And what happened is you see this really clean world where everyone is happy, everyone is affirming, everyone is encouraging because everyone wants to be seen as that which is happy and satisfied. But you realize how empty it is because people are only interacting with you so that you would give a better ranking to them. They want to, be, they want to affirm so that they can be affirmed. They want to like you so that you would like them. They want to post so that they can be noticed. They want to do all these things, and the sad thing is, is that the reality that this painted is actually already a reality in our hearts. Whether it's on social media, or whether it's in class, or in relationships, or with your family, we all desire to use love as a tool to benefit ourselves. In the name of love, we do things to leverage our own position. It's not something earnestly given to others, but it's something used to manipulate our own standing and our own comfort. Just, think, just take the social media aspect of your life. How many times have you followed someone hoping they would follow you back? How many times have you posted something knowing that there is one specific person who is going to like that? How many times have you snapped a picture hoping to be noticed? How many times have you favored it in order to be flattered? But here, we see the problem in this reality is that they are in love with being loved. They want to be loved. They want to be accepted. They want to take what's given and they want to hoard it. But here in scripture, the priority of love isn't being loved, but being love. 
The priority isn't what love get, what is it that love gives to me, but here the priority of earnestly living our life for God is what is the love that I can give to others? What is the impact I make on someone else? What is the joy that I can give away? You see, in John 15, 12, Jesus says this, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Wouldn't it be great if everyone in your life so I remember when I first started dating Sarah and I was like, I don't, I'm the most, I'm still the most awkward guy ever around women. I'm even awkward around my wife. And so like, I remember dating her and being like, I wish someone would just tell me what I should do in this instance. Like, do I hold her hand? Do I open the door? Do I close my mouth when I'm chewing? You know, certain things like that. And, uh, and here the God of the universe is telling you what you should do. That makes life so much simpler. He says, love one another as I have loved you. You see, we can often place a right priority on love, but the love that we prioritize can often be so distant from the love which the Bible emphasizes. Because the love the Bible emphasizes isn't attached to pop culture, it's attached to Jesus. Jesus calls us to love as he set the bar for what love is is. Jesus is true love, and that must become the basis for our love. What makes us real lovers isn't romance, but redemption. To have all of the romance in the world, but to not know the redemption of Jesus Christ is to love people with a fleeting shadow. And I've noticed something. Um, I actually... Growing up, maybe it was just because I knew the girls liked chick flicks and I liked girls, is I liked chick flicks. I did. I found them entertaining because they always had this consistent plot, you could try to guess. And now, um, having a wife, I realize that I don't need to watch chick flicks. But I do because I love her. And it's interesting, no matter how terrible the plot line, how lousy the acting or poor the lighting, by the end of the chick flick, I want to love my wife more. I do. It just paints this, this cheap, lovely picture of love. And at the end of it, I'm like, you know, I am just so grateful I have my wife. I want to love her. I want, I want to have her have the feelings that, that Meg Ryan had when Tom Hanks swept her off her feet. And we all get that. That's why we were drawn to these things. That's why like you go into bookstores and they have aisles and aisles and aisles of romance novels. People are drawn to that. But if looking at a chick flick or a book can lead us to love someone else, how much more will looking at the love Jesus had in the gospel compel us to love those who are around us? For Jesus loved us when we were his enemy. Jesus loved us when we had no ability to love him back, no ability to follow him or to like him. Jesus loved us, Romans says, Paul says in Romans, when we were hostile towards him. He loved us because he had a priority of love. And his priority evolved the shape because he had the right perspective of love. And this is our second point tonight, the perspective of love. When it comes to love, perspective matters. And this is something we just noticed. It says, why we love is just as important as how we love, right? Why we love is just as important as how we love. And look at the perspective Peter paints for us uh, here in 1 Peter verses 23 through 25. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For, and he begins here to quote um, the prophet Isaiah, he says, uh, For all flesh is like grass, 
and all its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Okay, so I want us to just take a still shot of what we read, and I want us to flip back a page and look at what he said. So again, we're thinking one reading. This is how it was meant to be read. Looking at verse 12, Peter says this, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. So here Peter's saying that the people served you by preaching this good news to you. This good news which angels long to look. People who observe humanity and aren't afflicted by any of our weaknesses or any of our calamities or any of our damages, they look at this good news and they long for it. Well, what is that good news? A page later, Peter defines it for us. Look again, 25, the second part of verse 25. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And in the Greek, it's the emphasis of, of this good news. It's emphasizing the similarity of this good news to what he previously talked about. What is the good news that was preached to you? What is the gospel? The word there used for preach good news is, is just the gospel. It is here, the word of God, which makes us born again. The good news of Jesus isn't that Jesus loves us. The good news of Jesus isn't that Jesus exists. The good news of Jesus isn't that we have awesome worship songs. The good news of Jesus is that it makes us born again of an imperishable seed. You see, in, in 1 Peter 1, we see that inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you. You only have access to that through the word of God. And this passage starts with the assumption of salvation. It starts assuming you have been purified by obedience. It echoes Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.11 where it says you have been washed. You have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You have been purified. And see, purification to truth only happens through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way you get access to true love, the only way you get imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for you is through Jesus because without Jesus, you're destined to die. Without Jesus, you're perishable. Without Jesus, you will live here, die here, and live in hell forever for rejecting God, and not worshiping the person who is due all glory and honor and praise. But because of this assumption of salvation, this assumption of the word of God coming to us, it says, with Jesus, you will live here, you will die here, but you will rise again in eternity. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 40, 42 through 44. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So the, the truth is, just in time for Halloween, when you die, if you are in Christ Jesus, you will be resurrected and you will spend a physical eternity in a perfect world with Jesus forever. The presence of Jesus is
good enough. The absence of sin makes it even better. That's our reality. That's our existence. Heaven isn't disembodiment floating on clouds, playing harps, waiting for football games to start. Heaven is pleasure and joy, really, physically, tangibly, with tastes and sounds and textures for all eternity. And how does that shape our love? Because we all have layers of love, don't we? We all understand this. Because I love my wife, and uh, if I take my wife on a date, she feels loved. Really good, true, pure, Tyler-oriented love. And it'll be good, and we'll enjoy it. She'll think about it maybe the next day. Maybe next day she'll forget about it. Maybe day three. Nah, by day five, she's already ready for another date. Give her a flower. I gave my wife flowers two weeks ago. She loved them. Picked some great pink Gerber daisies. I did it with my kids, which made it even more valuable um, because I got flowers with the task of not letting children break all the other flowers in the world. And, uh, and so I brought the flowers home and she loved them. She just told me two days ago, she said, Tyler, those are great flowers. They're still robust. We have one upstairs on the kitchen counter. We have a vase down in our room. She's like, they're beautiful. So two weeks out, it still reminded her. She felt loved by them. But I looked last night and those Gerber daisies are just about decapitated. Their heads are like hanging low, and sure enough, if you take a living flower and you cut it, it dies. And these flowers are gonna die. She's gonna get new ones. Where a date lasted for a few days, the flowers lasted for a few weeks, but now imagine how marriage changes things. If I go to Sarah, as I did with a wedding ring, how much longer does that love last? Where dates last for days and flowers last for weeks, marriage lasts until she dies. For decades, and I pray decades, of beautiful, beautiful romance with my wife. How much more lovely is that? You see, there is a time perspective to love. And we all understand that. And the Bible here says that physical love is good. It is good to serve others. It is good to give. Jesus says, for those of you who did not serve the least of these, you didn't serve me. And for those of you who serve the least of these, you also served me. Feeding, serving, loving, providing physical needs is good. Also, the Bible says, bearing with one another, grieving with one another, rejoicing with one another, celebrating with one another, meaning the emotional needs of one another is good, true love. Multiple truths at one time coexisting. But how much more love happens when we go beyond the physical and sentimental and we love others with an eternal love. We love others into forever. You see, if we really earnestly from a pure heart think we love others, when you take that assessment and you drive that dipstick into your own heart to check your level of love, when was the last time you reminded somebody of eternity? When was the last time you had a conversation which benefited even a brother or sister in Christ in here, their eternity? It made the gospel more beautiful. It made them long more for heaven. It made them appreciate more the sacrifice of Jesus. When was the last time you saw a brother or sister wrestling with sin and you fought alongside them for that imperishable nature of their life? One day, this temptation will be no more. One day, this pain, this addiction, this suffering, this trauma, this trial, it won't be there and we'll just be with Jesus forever. And right now, he died so you could have power over that. Right now, he died so that you could resist that. Right now, he died so you could be free from that. Or do we literally sit back and watch the grass grow? Watch the flower fall and think we're contributing 
to a lovely world. You say you have love without acts of love. Even society says that's foolish. You say you have love without the words of love and you deceive yourself. If you really believe that Jesus changed your eternity on the cross, don't you think that would change your friendships on this side of the grave? Look at this quote from author David Powelson. He's also a counselor. He says this, he says, I have seen wrecked lives changed simply because a friend cared and was willing to speak honestly like this. I love you and respect you as a person. I want what's good for you, but you are destroying yourself with what you believe and how you're living. Those were precisely the words that changed my life. The cruise missiles of wise love blew apart the bunker of self-will in which I lived. My friend's words were not the product of a technique. They were artless, but they had four things going for them. They were true, loving, personal, and appropriate. The living God himself brought my friend's words home with power. He was right. Out of the collapse of core willfulness, I could hear for the first time the voice of another, even greater friend. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And there he's quoting Ezekiel 36. When have you shared the gospel with even a Christian friend? When have you shared the gospel with a non-Christian friend? When have you asked somebody, how many times have you asked, what's the best movie you've watched lately? What did you think of that movie? When was the last time you asked somebody what they thought about their true joy? Where they get their satisfaction in life? What they thought of the sermon? What they think about God? When was the last time you even prayed for someone outside yourself? Prayed that they would know God, that they would be brought from death to life. When have you really pressed into to how people are doing? One thing uh, we've started doing with GCF staff and it started at Summer Project is, is when we meet, we just give, we say, hi, Lowe's, what's the best thing that happened this week? What's the worst thing that happened this week? And it's amazing, even when you do that with non-Christians, how you begin to see the needs of their heart. That's a casual question you could ask people. When do you bow your pride and humbly serve your friends at the altar of forever? You see, it's one thing to love. If someone comes to me, if why my, why my wife comes to me and says, Tyler, I need to go on a date. If my son comes to me and says, Dad, I'm scared. If my friends come to me and say, Tyler, I need your help. It's easy to love that. But this is calling us to love earnestly. That's not waiting for others to come to you. That's not waiting until it's convenient, but that's moving forward with passion and with the offense of God's love, seeking to serve those around you. Can you imagine if just this group of 20 people or if the 40 people who are, on who are coming on retreat, if they were earnest for God's love here on campus, what would that look like? What if we were earnest with loving people? What if we said we are going to be defined by a biblical, true, lasting picture of love? What would it look like in your own family? What would it look like in your room? You see, this is what separates the realists and the optimists from those who truly live. The question is, how do you get there? Because don't we want that? Don't we want to really do that? Don't we want to know when our car is about to blow up? But only when we see the value of it and the means of it do we ever seek to really do it. And that's the last point tonight. This is the process of love. 
back uh, in 1 Peter, we want to see what it is that stands between us and earnest love. What keeps you in your heart right now from loving those around you? He begins again in chapter 2. So, so, he spe- so, that, so the word here is actually referring back. It says, so put away, because of this, put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. You see, when we fail to love, we all justify our lack of love, right? When I gave you that question earlier and you thought about how it is you love those around you, we say, well, I'm busy. I love my friends. I love my family. Or we, we, we say, I have a lock, lack of opportunity. We say, I'm good, I'm great, it's fine. But have you ever used these words to define your lack of love? Because <laughs> there a, there's, a, a, there's a big, I hate it, there's this big number two in our Bible, and we just think like, chapter one's done, new chapter, new plot, new topic, but this is immediately after it. Love one another earnestly, pursue with sincere brotherly love because you have been saved for brotherly love, so put away all envy, malice, hypocrisy, deceit, slander. You see, to not love is to be all these things. To not love is to fail in these categories. For how malicious is it to say you love someone while letting them die in front of you? How deceptive is it to tell them you care without actually caring for their eternal matter? How hypocritical is it to think that the same love which saved you isn't enough to save them. You see, we often fail to love because we build into our lives defense mechanisms with, which seem to justify our passivity. We don't want to be seen as different. We don't want to be seen as pushy. We don't want to be seen as religious. We don't want to be seen as intolerant. We don't want to be seen as stodgy or dogmatic. And we would rather let them lose their life than to lose them as a friend. With friends like that, who needs enemies? If that's not malicious, if that's not short-sighted, if that's not foolish, I don't know what is. But then Peter says this, 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 2, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So I remember this movie, I don't know if you, has anyone seen the movie Idiocracy? So it's this futuristic, satirical movie that takes basically everything that pop culture loves and blows it up like decades into the future. So the president is like, uh, what's, the, what's the guy's name? Terry Crews. The president's Terry Crews. He's like this, it's basically this year's election circuit. It's this popular celebrity who wins by popular appeal because it's cool to vote for him. And they just start doing stupid things like everyone loves energy drinks. It gives them energy, it, it, it invigorates them, it revitalizes them, it's cool, it's got great packaging, it's green. And what they do is they say, well, we love energy drinks, let's put energy drinks, let's feed it to our crops. Let's make energy drink infused crops. And so they, instead of watering their plants, they give their plants and their crops energy drinks for food. Surprise, surprise, it kills the food. Nothing grows. It bleaches their fields. And people begin to starve. You see, we too often get fascinated with what the world tells us love is. 
We fall prey to the lie that true love is whatever excites or pleases those around us. That if anyone can say you're not loving, then we are clearly and obviously unloving. And what that means is that that person gets to define love and I have no say in it. But in the same way, we have been born again, which we saw earlier, by the living word of God. Because we are born again, we are also nourished by a different kind of milk. We are given life by a different sort of nourishment, a real milk, a milk that causes us to grow, a milk which enables us to change, a milk that pushes us to live differently. You see, exciting and worldly love may seem loving, but it will cause no growth. It will stunt, it will starve, and it will destroy. But if we have tasted that the Lord is good, then we will believe that the true milk is what's best. And the true milk is this word which was preached to you. The true milk is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, you weren't saved by weak pop culture love. You, will save, you were saved by real love. And real love allows us to throw off blind optimism and to look soberly at our hearts and consider the cost of lovelessness. You see, we are weak lovers because by nature we are fearful. We're fearful of missing out. We're fearful of being rejected. We're fearful of death itself. But what Peter calls us to is taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that there's something better. Taste and see that there's something more powerful. Taste and see that there's a greater motivation, that there's a compelling factor that's greater than any fear you could ever have. And look at what that is in John, or 1 John 4, verses 18 through 21. There is no fear in love. Everyone knows that, right? No fear in love. That's a great tattoo verse. Everyone has it. But what does that mean? How is there no fear in love? Why are we still so fearful? Yet we claim to be so good at love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he, that's Jesus, loved us first. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. How does perfect love cast out fear? Because perfect love died to take away your punishment. Perfect love died so that you won't die. Perfect love suffered so that you won't eternally suffer. Perfect love took the wrath of God so that you would never have to take the wrath of God. Perfect love came so that we could have our greatest problems solved and live in the freedom of Christ's redemption. Perfect love came so that we might have eternal perspective. We stood loveless, empty, cold, and dead. And Jesus didn't wait for a pulse or for us to put on makeup or for us to make the first move. Jesus made the first move by taking on flesh and dying for your sins. He broke the barriers and he threw away our shame and he died. And now we serve eternal needs because Jesus made you an eternal person. That changes things. That's a real love. That's a lasting love. That's a love that endures. The language of this text is permanence, abiding, continuing, enduring, persevering. Do you want that? Then taste and see that God's love does that. Taste and see for yourself. Taste and see in your own heart. Taste and see and accept the word of God. Hear the good news of the gospel. Confess and believe and you will live forever. And when you've tasted that, how can we neglect the good milk that God has given us to give to others? You see, 
this love will not always be welcomed by our world. In fact, even today, it will be called hateful, bigoted, intolerant, and unjustifiable. But because this word endures, this love will always be love. And by God's grace, this love will one day be the only love. Do not fall prey to flashy love which numbs the soul, but instead participate in giving your life to an eternal love. So I want to come back to that question, what do you know? What do you know about your life? What do you know about your priorities? What do you think you know about love? About friendship? About brotherly compassion? Philip Ryken closes with this. He says this, the greatest kindness we can ever show to anyone is to share the gospel. So be kind to neighbors and strangers in the kindest way by inviting them to church, talking with them about spiritual things, and testifying to them about Jesus Christ. The loving work of personal evangelism is the greatest kindness in the world. Don't neglect the other truths, but look at the priority of this one. Don't say, well, we need to care for people physically. Yes, but care for them eternally. I want this group to be typified by this love. And I know that that doesn't happen through your effort. I know that doesn't happen through your willpower. I know that happens by tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. And so to go back to where this whole verse started, are you obedient to the truth? Are you obedient to the truth that purifies you for brotherly love, that saves you for sincere and earnest love from a pure heart? Because if you are in Christ, that is who you are. That picture is your picture, that Jesus is your Jesus. So let's go and let's love and let's serve. And by God's grace, we will see more people brought from death to life than there has ever been on this campus because we trust and know that God is good. Let's pray. Lord, I even think just in my own uh, perception of friendship, no one ever considers themselves a poor friend. <laughs> Until someone comes up to them and says, man, you really hurt me, or man, you really dropped the ball. We all consider ourselves great friends. But Lord, let us not assume that we are great friends or great lovers or great servants, but let us look into our hearts and let's compare it with the gospel that Peter just presented. Are we earnestly loving from a pure heart for the sake of eternity, for the glory of God, for the flourishing of humanity, for the endurance of God's people, for the growth of our salvation to grow up in stature, to be more like Christ so that we might have a bigger mouth to taste God's goodness and a great, greater stomach to hold it all and, and to show people the goodness of God and to be Jesus' hands and, to feet and his feet and to carry the gospel of goodness and to love despite whether love is reciprocated because we didn't reciprocate God's love. He pursued us when we hated him and we can pursue others because we love them. So what I pray Tonight, here we go on a weekend adventure where we remove from culture, we remove from opposition, we remove ourselves from secular thought, and we are surrounded by the people of God's love. Lord, I pray for tonight. I pray for tomorrow. When we go into a world which is not 
this Christian ghetto where everything is safe. I pray that love happens there in the hardship, in the darkness, in the hate, in the discomfort. And Lord, I pray love happens on our retreat, not because we are lovely people, but because we get the picture of a loving gospel. We love you, Lord. We pray that this is true in our hearts. Help us taste and see that the Lord is good so that we may long for a pure spiritual milk and grow into our salvation. Amen.